Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive, and live well. So let's dive in. All right, well, welcome back to another episode on the Three Little Things podcast. My name is Sarah, and I'm joined with my co-host, Lily, as always. And we have Jules back for part two. Hello. This is the second part of our codependency episode. Um, and we're going to dive straight in, but what I will just quickly say is if you haven't listened to part one, it's probably a really good idea to jump on and listen to that first, um, as we're going to jump straight into it and follow on um, the other three core symptoms where Jules touched on the first two in part one, and we're going to touch on the, the other three um, in this part. So if you haven't, jump in, listen to part one, and then jump back to part two. Hmm. So um, I guess we just go straight into it, yeah? Jules, yep. hit us away. Okay, so this is um, core issue number three. So we've covered self-esteem and boundaries, which were the first two core issues um, of codependency. And the third one is difficulty owning our reality. So owning our reality is about being who we are um, and being aware of also what we're thinking, um, what we're feeling, our body and our behaviours. Um, and codependents are either aware of their reality, and that, but they're afraid to share their reality in fear of what others might think about them, usually, you know, in fear of rejection, um, or um, aren't aware of their reality. So that's the more severe end of codependency is that they don't really know what their reality is. Um, and, you know, one of the existential crises, uh, crises that, you know, people come into a recovery acknowledging is that sometimes they actually don't really know who they are when they first come into a recovery and kind of um, learning about who they are is part of their recovery. So, yeah, so, you know, typically codependents will um, struggle um, expressing their opinion, particularly if it's um, in opposition to what someone else might think um, and they particularly have difficulty speaking up when someone maybe has wronged them or that when they're upset with someone um, and the problem here is that you know you really um, don't get a good connection you don't get a real authentic um, relationship you know codependents struggle being real with people honesty is not something that they can do really well um, and when we don't speak up um, to keep the peace, we start a war within. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no opportunity for conflict um, to happen either if we're just being really agreeable. Um, in relationships therapy, we say that conflict is growth trying to happen in a relationship. And if conflict is done well because people are sharing their reality and talking things out, it does lead to growth. But mm-hmm. it really stunts um, the relationship when we don't share what's going on for us Mm. so yes it causes problems in our relationships it causes issues with connection so you said um that someone who's codependent might have trouble being honest and Mm. sort of giving do they also have trouble receiving that like receiving honesty or is it that a little bit different oh depends on what kind of honesty it is um so if it's something about how they might have impacted someone in a negative place you know in in order to hear that kind of stuff we need to have a good platform for self-worth to do that um so this goes back to the self they're all interlinked all these symptoms so it's really hard to separate them all because they knock onto each other but firstly we need to have good boundaries as well to decide that what that information coming through is true or not true or do i need some more information and then we also need to have a good platform of self-worth as well and and realize that someone can be upset with me and that's okay I'm still okay um so yeah so that's a good question yeah so it takes away the word um blame then doesn't it because um so much of what people are going through in adult life I find it's all about blaming their, their childhood or blaming their parents you know yeah teachers coaches co-workers Do you feel that this number three, the owning one's own? Yes, blame can um, definitely come into that. Um, Particularly um, one of the ones, um, particularly around our, you know, behavior reality as well. Like, so if we're not um, able to 
for instance, accept our own imperfections about ourselves. So part of being real is, is, is owning that we are very imperfect as human, you know, to err is to be human. Um, and if we are unable to accept our own imperfections, one thing that we can do is go into blaming others. You know, I heard once, uh, Blame is shame pointed outwards mm. often. Um, and, yeah, so we can go into blame to kind of deny our own imperfections in ourselves um, because we don't have that platform of self-worth to be able to hear it. So, yeah. Hmm. Interesting one. Yeah, it is an interesting one. Um, so how can this get set up in childhood? Mm. How can difficulty owning our reality get set up in childhood so um our reality comprises of our body what we're thinking our feelings and our behaviors so each one of those ones can happen on a different level so the first one around our body so when we have difficulty sharing about our body um one thing that comes up for me quite a bit is um when we have body shame and we might you know hide behind baggy clothing or go on these really you know, restrictive diets or even develop an eating disorder because we feel um, shame around our body. This is a big thing that I think culturally and society, like in society, um, there's a big issue around it. You know, not everyone looks like a supermodel on the front of the magazines or the people on TV. Um, And so people learn that, you know, um, their body is not okay. They feel Mm -hmm. shame about their you know, um, body reality, their fear of being rejected. There is a lot of fat phobia Mm. out there, you know, and not everyone's meant to be in a thin body. Like some of us are born in larger bodies. Um, And, yeah, I think the media has a lot to play in that. There's um, an interesting study that came up organically actually that um, I I think it was like the 1980s where the TV was first uh, Uh, released in Fiji and um, they found that before that there was almost no incidence of eating disorders um, or body image issues and all of a sudden um, particularly the women um, they're developing eating disorders after the introduction of TV which was very much you know Anglo-Saxon thin people on TV um, you know, which is at odds with, you know, Islanders, you know, they're more of a heavy set body and that's where they're naturally healthy and look the best. Um, but you know, all of a sudden they get TV and they start feeling body shame. So this is a really difficult one to avoid. You can be fabulous parents and have a lot of body positivity, but you can't, you know, hide your children from, you know, social media or... So sad. And also you have babies who are breastfed, who are naturally, um... You know, quite healthy in weight, but they just look round. I mean, I can have a, my kids being called chubby. Mm. Now, that's a difficult word, mm. isn't it, to, to use? Well, this stems back to, like, I think what you just said then, Jules, about, like, that's a hard one to avoid. But if mm. we can tap into all those other bits and pieces, like we spoke about in part one, and what you've just mentioned is the language we're using and mm-hmm. all those other self worth and self esteem, if we can do our bit there, then hopefully the media and things that are out of our control don't have the same effect. Mm-hmm. Right? That's yes. the kind of hope. But also yeah. such yeah. loving words, something like, you know, oh, she's so a body lad, you know, she's yeah. a body less, you know, yeah. um, and the body thing obviously means you've got beautiful fat cheeks because mm-hmm. you're so well fed, you know, um, aren't you a blessed baby? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you've been born into a blessed family and the, the mother can feed you and so on. Mm. So they're actually compliments, but they're mm. so loaded, those mm. words. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's true. What do you suggest? Do you feel that, I mean, hey, we, we can't PC all our language, otherwise we wouldn't no. have our language. Yeah, right? exactly. And even like those languages isn't bad unless you're growing up in a society where that's not a good thing. You know, like it's, mm. people say, you know, if you're a farmer, you go, that's a nice fat cow. Mm. That's a good thing. But somehow in our culture, yeah. um, you know, fat's a bad thing. Um, and you know, there's the fat phobia that I mentioned. So having a chubby baby is healthy and somewhere along the way, being chubby becomes a bad thing. Mm. Um, yeah. So how do you mitigate all that? Because, um, you know, there's so many words like chunky, Mm. you know, I mean, I I can think of so many now, Mm. like puppy fat. Yeah. Yeah. Baby fat. Baby fat. Yeah. So many words now because we use them, you know, freely. Yeah. Or you'll hear people say like, oh, they'll grow into it. You know, like they'll grow into their chubbiness or whatever, you know, that like that sort of language is very common. Yeah, yeah. Mm. absolutely. <laughs> but if you were like, if you uh, grew up in Jamaica, for instance, where a curvy woman is 
um, well, I'm speaking about women particularly here at the moment, but um, is more revered and, and that's mm. something that they find really attractive. So it's, it's a very cultural thing. Um, so um, depending on where you grew up, you know, some, mm. some countries it's a sign of wealth and prosperity if you have more weight on you. In this culture, there's, there's a very um, unrealistic expectation mm. around how both men and women should be looking. Um, and people then engage in very, you know, we talked about how these core symptoms, if they're left unaddressed, can lead to secondary symptoms, eating disorders, or going, being an exercise addict mm. and pumping yourself through, full of steroids and things like that, um, can lead to like, these really unhelpful behaviours. Mm. Yeah, so you know, we're sort of, you know, drifting off the theme a little bit, you know, but we seem to be so judgmental about people who, I can remember my mother, you know, when <laughs> she was... Um, alive looking at a politician who was going for um, prime ministership in Australia mm-hmm. and she said look at him he can't get a control over his own weight how can he control the country mm. <laughs> I thought, mm. <laughs> and my mother could say whatever she wanted because she just did anyway and I thought well, what do you do the okay so she said it so she's the only person thinking it mm. um, you see so mm. yeah you know urban myths cultural myths yeah but that is, I mean, you just mentioned just one word, fat, you know, I mean, it, it could be a number of things, you know, dark skin, it could be, um, you know, silly hairstyle, it could be yeah. a number of things, yeah. Yeah, it could be a number of things. That was, yeah, that's that's true. There's, there's so many different ways that that could, um, you know, having shame around our body reality can play out. Um, uh, yeah, so it's a really good point. Mm. Yeah. Right. Gosh. So owning our reality. Yeah. Owning our reality. So that, yeah. So the body image was just sort of one sort of segment, right? One part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the next level of that, by the way, you know, where I talked about the two levels is the, you know, not even knowing what our body reality is. So mm. that can look like body dysmorphia where, you know, people, particularly people who have eating disorders, um, will look in the mirror and see usually a much larger person than what they actually are. There might be, you know, incredibly um, skinny. Mm. Um, and people who've uh, had childhood sexual abuse are often very disconnected from their bodies. So they're disconnected from their body reality too. The other ones, so the thinking, feeling, um, reality problems, um, I will talk about them together. So in a dysfunctional family, um, the three unspoken rules is don't trust, don't um, don't speak, and don't feel. Those are the things that aren't safe to do in a dysfunctional family. Particularly, don't talk about the dysfunction that's going on. That's not safe. And don't have any feelings about it. Um, so, you know, and things like specifically that can happen that can cause issues um, sharing our thinking and feeling reality is, you know, when we get um, ashamed or abused for having those feelings, um you know, like, oh, I'll give you something to cry about, or we get iced out, or they, you know, become icy and withdraw their love if we share feelings. Um, if we are told, um, you know, you know, even in society that certain feelings make us, you know, if we share, like I said, kind of share love and joy, but if we share, like, anger, pain, and, um, and fear, then we're being too emotional or we're being immature. Um... Mm. Hysterical. Hysterical, yeah. Um, and there's, there is some kind of gender um, uh, differences on what is socially acceptable, uh, acceptable for a man and what's socially uh, acceptable for a woman to express. So, you know, boys are, are taught, you know, little boys don't cry. Mm-hmm. And girls are taught it's unbecoming of a lady to show anger. And um, so guess what men do when they feel sad? Mm. They get angry. They get angry, right? So male depression often looks like anger. Mm. It's like a big wall of anger and underneath it's a whole lot of sadness and pain. But that's not socially, you know, men are supposed to be tough and strong and vulnerable. This is what society says. Um, And women are supposed to be meek and vulnerable. Mm. And so when women get angry, they tend to cry. Mm. Um, Otherwise they get called a bitch or is it that time of your cycle? Or, you know, there's all these things that society says. Um, And there was an interesting thing on the media recently, which just kind of makes my point. Um, I don't know if you guys saw um, the recent um, Australia of the Year presentation and there was that frosty exchange between Grace Tame and um, the Prime Minister of the time. Um, But she just showed her very 
much dislike to meeting him. And the context behind that is that she's a sexual abuse survivor that advocates for sexual abuse survivors. Um, And meeting a man who knowingly enabled the sexual assault of women in his parliament by knowing it was going on and not doing anything about it, um, of course you wouldn't be happy, right? But she got absolutely torn to shreds by the media. They said, you shouldn't have just come. You shouldn't have come. You should have so immature. Grow up. Um, and then this was contrasted, and I, I actually posted this on where someone uh, wrote wrote this up, and I thought it was quite smart, because they reflected on maybe a year or two years ago when something similar happened with a, with a male firefighter whose house had burnt down because the Prime Minister hadn't acted soon enough. And, you know, he refused to shake the hand of the Prime Minister. But he was held, the, the comments in the media, he was held as a hero. Mm. Um, they were say, good on you, mate, stand your ground. So that's just like a difference of, you know, how one emotion is acceptable for one gender and not, and, and vice versa. If a man cries in public, there's often a lot more shame associated with it than if a woman does. So it's definitely a problem in our society too um, about sharing our thinking and feeling reality um, and being vulnerable with people uh, without being shamed mm. or rejected or mm. abused for it. So That's why it's so good to have this podcast because we're hearing um, views that you're not going to get from newspapers or mm. the media, which people actually quote endlessly, don't they? You know, they go, oh, I saw it on the 7 o'clock news and blah, blah, blah. And I mm. go, oh, yes, that's heavily curated. Yes. <laughs> but it's so interesting because there was that you used... Um, and that whole quote, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words cannot hurt me. Now, I fully disagree with that saying, you know, it's mm. such a, I don't know mm. how that came about, but mm. words are very powerful. Mm. They? they are, they're um, really powerful. Yeah, anyway. So, good. Yes. Oh, gosh. All right. Next point, do you think? The next one. Yes. Oh. So the last one is the behavior reality. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think I touched on this just earlier, but around, um, you know, that, we as as human beings are imperfect and children are even more imperfect right they make more mistakes um that that you know mistakes are life's learning lessons you know a lot of the the learning lessons are kind of making mistakes and trial and error um but where this is not understood in a family system and the child uh rather than being made accountable for their behaviors okay you've spilled the milk let's you know try to try to be even more careful next time and let's go clean it up together is that they get excessively shamed for it so them as when we're shaming someone we're devaluing them as a person we, we call them a good for nothing so-and-so or stupid so when we start name calling and shaming them and just being overly punitive around mm. all their mistakes that child grows up feeling so shameful about their mistakes and their imperfections um, that what they do is they strive to be perfect um, and try not to make mistakes as possible because that keeps me safe it keeps me from being rejected um, and they even might deny or lie or justify we use you know you said blame before blame others for their um, behaviors um, because of that huge amount of shame attached. And these people, if you try to hold them accountable, like so not shaming for something that they've done, like maybe they get reviewed at work and um, you know they're held accountable for not doing something, they'll experience it as incredibly shaming. And there's a difference between holding someone accountable and shaming them. Mm-hmm. But because making mistakes, they've linked to, to being you know shamed, it's very difficult. To be able to own in a in a really healthy way um, our imperfections of what we might do, mm. yeah. Worthiness, yeah. Yeah, we need a good platform of worthiness to be able to um, accept that and to say like I'm sorry mm. to own our imperfections. I'm sorry is a very healthy word. I have a problem is a really good one too. Um, in fact, the first step of the 12 steps is admitting we have a problem. Mm. So um, if you have problems owning your imperfection, this is like one of the hardest things to do because of the shame that's attached to it. And we'll even deny it to ourselves. You know, so many, particularly like when you think about people um, who have addictions, there's a lot of stigma around addiction. There's so much shame that a lot of the time, you know, Mm. breaking through that denial is the hardest step, Mm. you know. So... um, yeah, it's a tough one. Mm. Okay. Mm. Shall we go on to the next? Yes. So yeah. the so the tip just I'll just give um you know one tip yep. uh for um 
maybe two, (laughs) for being better at experiencing and sharing our reality is, um, you know, start sharing your reality with people who um, are safe. So, you know, particularly the stuff that's hard, like when someone's negatively impacted you, um, learning to have a language about that and learning to express your feelings. Start with a safe person um, so you have a good experience and then you can start being able to do that with other people. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you're interested in doing a 12 step meeting, like codependency anonymous, but they call it CODA for short, is doing your first step. Mm. It's, it's about owning your reality and owning where your codependency sabotages your life. And it's, you know, you do it with a sponsor, um, so with a supportive person who's non-judgmental. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a really good step to do. Um, difficult, but good. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and I can pop the link to like code or some more information in yes. the show notes. People can click on it. So I will, I will do that. I'll put it in the show notes. Great. Um, symptom or core symptom number four. Okay. That would be problems with interdependence. Now interdependence has to do with, um, you've been able to self care for yourself first um before taking care of someone else so once you've been able to take care of all your needs you can then look after somebody else um and even ask for help and be able to receive help um and that also means saying no to others when you've reached your limit and you know it would interfere with you being able to properly look after yourself um so this is i think one of the core symptoms that when we think about codependency this is one that is people think of is Um, The codependent often really struggles with this. So they classically go into what we call caretaking or rescuing others. So this is different to the care you give to to a child, by the way, you know, where it's age appropriate. Um, Caregiving or rescuing people, when we use that term, it means you're doing something that that other person could or should be doing for themselves. Okay, and classically codependents, they don't ask you, how can I help you? Mm. They say, I will help. Mm. And they often overstep a lot of boundaries. Um, and doing that, um, they abandon their own needs and wants. Um, so they self-sacrifice those things. And they usually end up burnt out and feeling resentful by the end of it. Um, and they really struggle to ask for help as well. There's a lot of shame and um, yeah, kind of guilt about um, looking after their own needs and for asking for their own needs. And they might even go around, because of the shame of asking for their needs, be quite manipulative and trying to get their needs met. So, you know, you might walk in uh, to the room and, you know, your partner's there and it's all, like, messy. And rather than going, oh, listen, can you really just clean up after yourself? I really appreciate that. You just start sighing really loudly or doing something, like, hoping that they can read your mind and and do it. And, you know, they have these unrealistic expectations that people would know what their needs are because they're so overly focused on other people's needs that they're really good at judging. Yeah, well, they think they're really good at, at knowing what other people need. Sometimes they, you know, overstep and aren't so helpful. Just a passive-aggressive person, mm. is that what you would say? Well, I would say them as a person, but particularly around their needs because they just don't know how to appropriately ask for their needs to be met. Um, and they, don't, they sometimes they just don't have the language, you know, even to ask for their needs to be met. They think, but also because they do so much for other people without even being asked, they have this expectation that other people will do it. So they'll feel resentful. Um, well, you should know that I want this house cleaned when I'm home without actually asking for those needs to be met. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, I mean, Sarah and I bring up this word every so often, which is it's a matter of volume, you know. So mm. uh, maybe a child growing up didn't figure out where his or her volume of expectations um, should be. You know? mm-hmm. So should mum be at home every night of the week? You know, she isn't allowed to go out for dinner at all, you know, with her friends or her partner. Otherwise, the child will cry her eyes out, you know. So, you know, does it begin in childhood like that where the child doesn't know when to separate or individuate that was one of your words you used <laughs> in the first episode because you know how i mean i'm trying to figure out well we know many adults and i'm sure we all function to that extent sometimes mm-hmm. but at what point in childhood do we learn these um behaviors or mm. yes of healthy interdependence yeah. um so that's a good call so and that's like what the, i think the answer to that bit would be where it's age appropriate for that person for each of those kind of 
you know, um, uh, kind of needs and wants and skills to look after yourself. So we need to find, in order for a child to grow up with healthy interdependence, there's a few things that need to happen. So the first thing is um, a child needs things done for them. So the parent needs to do things for them. So obviously a baby can't feed themselves and kind of is very, very needy. Um, children are needy by definition um, for the parents to do things for them. And eventually at an age appropriate level, we need that parent to teach us how to do those things for us. And then after that, they we need our parents to stand back and, and support us when we need it. Um, and this this can go quite wrong in in uh, in childhood. Um, so what can go wrong with that is one of two extremes, and I'll explain both of them. I think the second one is going to be more about what you were saying. But as a um, as a child, um, we can be shamed for having our needs. So we can be called too needy, which for me is crazy because children are needy. But that's by definition. They have needs. Um, we can be called high maintenance. So we're shamed for having our needs. And this is often in those kind of family systems where the resources are really low. Like maybe both parents are working full time and there's no like, you know, grandparents around or auntie and uncles, maybe a lot of children. Um, and so the child then learns to feel shameful about having needs. The other thing is, is again, with there's low resources, children can be prevent parentified, so forced into these parent roles where they maybe have to take care of the younger siblings or look after a parent who might be struggling with mental health issues or addictions. Um, and the child learns to abandon themselves and their own needs to look after another. And this would not be, a, you know, when we talked about that age appropriate level, you know, when it's not age appropriate for that child to do that. Um, and you know, if there's abuse going on in the house, being a really easy child is a really safe thing to do. So being needless and wantless is a safe thing to do. So this can, you know, and often, you know, when the child was doing stuff for the for other people and being needless and wantless, they get, you know, they get praised for it. So a lot of their self-esteem, well, other esteem, should I say, um, gets uh, put into them being needless and wantless and what an easy child and oh look she will you know look at everything she's doing what a good little girl or boy um so this this is what creates the kind of person who will abandon themselves to look after other people on the flip side of code like this there's always two extreme ends of codependency then you've got the person who's too dependent who's like the under functioner in the relationship right um and those people growing up you know we talked you know do for teach how and stand back and support is rather their parents just do for mm. all the time and never teach them how to do it and never stand back and support um have you heard the phrase i've only learned it recently actually the snowplow parent have you heard that no so rather than preparing the child for the path ahead of them they prepare the path for the child oh. So, and <laughs> I, I, yeah, I love that. I think it's yeah. just so, such a good description. Um, so like, for instance, rather, you know, if a, if a child's having like, you know, relationship issues with their friends at school, rather than teaching your child conflict resolution skills and assertiveness that, you know, you go into school and you, you tell their mm. friends off and you sort it out for them, talk yeah. to the principal. Um, and so that child then is not empowered to do mm. those things for themselves. It's like a red carpet approach really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's actually really disempowering. The, the child mm. then grows up being super dependent on other people to do things for them. Mm. Yeah. So mm. the risk of it being a therapy session, because a lot of times you, know, you speak to someone like you and then it ends up being a very personal discussion. But So I would depersonalise it by saying, Right now, we are having quite a few patients in the practice mm -hmm. who, um, young kids of like 11 mm. or 12 or 8, yeah. who won't go to bed yeah. by themselves. They're sleeping in their parents' bed still. No. Yeah. What yeah. happened? Yeah. I mean, is that something that we can address using this model? Hmm. Oh, gosh. This is not like the, the sleeping thing is a totally... I, I do need to say different cultures, that's very socially acceptable. Sure. Co-sleeping in certain cultures. Mm. Um, I don't know. That's a that's an interesting one about sleeping because, you know, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine whose um, kids uh, co-sleep and they're about, oh, about maybe 10. Mm. Um, one's eight, one's 10. And I said, oh, isn't that um, 
oh, how is that for you? Like, oh, that you know, co-sleeping another always in your bed. And she said, it's only a problem if you make it a problem. Okay. Um, yeah, good I don't think there's any research of, you know, people going into adulthood and still needing to sleep in the same bed. Not when they're dating, I'm sure. Yeah, when they're dating. Just then. So, so that that's a very um, that's a very interesting one. The sleep thing, because lots of cultures, that's very acceptable that the sure. whole family sleep in the bed. Yeah. Um, I personally, um, I I've never co-slept with my parents, but I like sleeping with people in my bed too, and particularly my dogs. <laughs> I don't like sleeping alone. Um, Bones and walls, Jules. Yeah, but I mean, I did, I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah, my, I have no boundaries with my dogs. That's my okay. next growing edge. Um, <laughs> I think the no dogs on the bed rule lasted for about 30 minutes when I brought my first dog yeah. home. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, the sleep, the sleep thing is quite a unique thing. So it's a very cultural thing. Um, and I guess the question around that is if it's problematic. But there's lots of other, um, like other situations where you've got someone who might be, you know, a, an adult living in at home with their parents which is common because it's really um expensive that's not an issue um you know financially that's that's a situation that most people find themselves in particularly on the northern beaches it's not cheap um but that person also has all their meals meals cooked for them yeah um, clothes washed clothes washed yeah. might not even be paying rent because why do you yeah. need to yeah um because mum and dad say that's fine just you know mm. take your time um, which could actually be really just in, I, in fact, know someone, um, at, like this and they've got no confidence in themselves. They feel very less than, um, and worthless because they've never been empowered to go out and push themselves out of the comfort mm. zone rather than, um, you know, have their parents going, Oh no, you know, you can't do that. You know, but let me do this for you. Um, mm. so there's no empowerment of the person. Yeah, yeah, there's heaps of examples I can think of. Like sleep is a big one that that comes up in our practice. But things like parents making you know fifteen year olds lunches every day, packing their school bag, mm-hmm. organizing their after school activities. Um, there's I could just think of so many. Yeah, and you know working out to to the T their transport to and from places and just giving them absolutely no. Yeah. Um, with the intent to help. Yes. But giving them absolutely no power or empowerment in their. Yeah, organizing their own daily yeah. life. Yeah, there's uh, so many. Absolutely, and I think the reality is, it's like you know, often quicker to go in and clean your kid's room up than it is to to sit there and help your kid, you know, teach mm. your kid how to do it. And so you know, in this very rush lifestyle, I think sometimes it's like the quicker fix is just to do it for them. Um, so you know, actually teaching them, you know, I I've got a snack drawer where my kid is, and she'll open the packets herself, and um, you know, so I can empower her to go grab a snack, you know, when she wants one, and organize that you know all the healthy treats down down the bottom um but she leaves a mess so it's more work for me to do it um so it's about me having to like how to tolerate that that i know it's going to be quicker and there's no you know there's going to be mess after after um after it but um i know it's better for her and eventually it'll be better for me that i don't have to get up every time she yeah. she's hungry or um it's finding that balance isn't it it's so hard so it's going to up a lot of discussion, I think, because um, as yeah. you say, those the parents that you've just described, yeah. probably in their own minds, think they're, they're being a very good parent. Mm. But that's what I mean. Yeah, their, inti- yeah. Yeah, their intent is but to help, of course. Too good rather than good enough. That's exactly right. Mm. Yeah. So it's a matter of volume once again, isn't it? Like you want yeah. to be a good person, but yes. are you too good a person? Or yeah. you know, are you a good enough person? And it kind of comes mm. back to that idea, which I, I just sort of was thinking of, but it's like that duplication effect as well, is that, you know, you're not trying to, you know, in that sense, once that parent's gone, that child doesn't know how to do those things by themselves. But if we can teach them these lessons, well, then that duplication will continue. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Give them a rod to fish rather than give them fish. Well, I mean, that's exactly so right. Stories, mm-hmm. exactly so right. Um, holy books, you know. Yeah. Some of them have such good um, lessons, don't mm. they? Yes. Oh, I love that. Um, that analogy that you just gave there. That's great. Um, yeah, I've heard variations of that now. Yeah, that's... Um, that's exactly right, um, mm-hmm. and you're really, you know, empowering them. And yeah, I think at parenting we've kind of flipped, you know, the other way. I think sometimes where you know, I don't, I don't know. In the '80s, I was left to kind of fend for myself quite yeah. a bit, and that yeah. was very normal. And now, um, yeah, sometimes we can go the other way, go the yeah. other way, and, and yeah. finding that that healthy in between where we're doing this. It, it's a juggle. It's hard. So mm-hmm. and yeah. some tips then, Jules. Some, yeah. Some tips. Okay. So if you're someone who goes on to the rescue side and caretakes and and sometimes abandons yourself and um, you know um, 
I have to say that women are generally kind of socialized to, to be those martyrs. Mm. Um, then what you're going to need to look at is um, looking at your own self-care. What are my needs? What are my wants? Um, you know, the good old oxygen mask analogy. It's such a cliche for therapists to say, but, you know, in the event of an emergency, you know, when oxygen masks fall from the ceiling, please put yours on first before helping someone else with someone else uh, with their mask. Um, and that's what we need to do. Um, and asking yourself a couple of questions like, you know, is this getting in the way of my self-care? Um, if I do this for another person, if I say yes to doing this, will I feel resentful afterwards? Am I empowering this person or disempowering this person by doing this? Um, I think is a really good question. Um, just a quick example. So my, I have, he's okay with me saying this, but my husband's like not very good at IT stuff at all. <laughs> so he's always coming to me with IT issues. And yeah, the quick response is just doing it for him. But in the long term, you know, he would just come to me with the same thing if I don't teach him. So, you know, I often think about this as well. I'm like, I'm going to empower you. I'm not going to do it for you, but I'm going to sit there and teach you how to do this. Um, and so next time you can just go do that yourself. And I, I think about that in certain situations, um, you know, as a parent as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good question. And if um, if you are on the other side where you're too dependent on other people to meet your needs, and I want to say the rescuer and the person who's too dependent, they gravitate to each other. So <laughs> two rescuers in the same household, it, it doesn't work. So you tend to have one person who's on one end of that. Um is you know being able to have some boundaries around other people doing things for you Mm. and if you don't have the skill sets to do it ask people to teach you how to do it rather than do it for you Mm. um empower yourself you know Mm. it's very empowering it's really good you know we feel like a sense of efficacy about ourselves when we learn new skills Mm -hmm. yeah very good so mm. brings us to the fifth number one. Oh, yeah. I thought we'd never get here. <laughs> yes. Just, yes. This will have to go under your longest podcast ever, I think. Um, Very useful. So the last one is um, the core symptom around difficulty exp- um, experiencing and expressing your reality in a way that is moderate. Um, in a way that's open, spontaneous and moderate. And this is something that codependents do struggle with. So they'll either be too controlled, like follow rigid codependent rules of needing to be good or perfect, being right, not having, not allowed to have fun. Um, a very, if they do have fun, it's very controlled and organized fun. Um, and always needing to be in control. Or they flip to the other side and they're out of control and they're chaotic and they can be destructive. Um, so it can be either um, extremes for that. Mm. Um, and codependents often have a very black and white way of thinking, like you're either with me or you're against me. I either trust everyone or I trust no one. Um, and that can lead to really um, kind of extreme ways of problem solving too. So you, you'll be in a relation, you know, having an argument with someone and you think, oh, that's it. Okay, we're going to break up now because we've had an argument rather than you know we can work through this and that's okay um so they'll they'll be quite extreme in their thinking and problem solving and in their emotions um so you know either out of control or really walled up and creating a deadness in relationships so um you know you're with the codependent there's that kind of you know disconnect of emotions Mm. yeah interesting so um, maybe they've read too many magazine articles on how to behave (laughs) No, I'm serious because um, a lot of people don't get their wisdom from the source, you know, they get them from flicking through Facebook or, you know, Instagram or TikTok, mm. whereas what you're talking about is um, so important and they really need to go and see an expert in figuring this thing out, you mm. know? So as you said, a lot of these things happened during childhood, which was a long time ago for a lot of us. Yeah. So how do you remember? Because it's so... You mentioned mm. the word amygdala mm. in, in your first episode. Mm. You know, sort of the, the non-verbal days of our lives, yeah. when we're all in theta. Yeah, yeah. you know, not to seven. Yeah, and that amygdala has a big part of how we do it, like particularly experience our reality moderately in terms of um, our feeling and our thinking. Because mm. um, when it's activated, you know, and we're in that fight or flight, or when we're getting triggered, I think I want to mention in the first podcast is. Um, if we get triggered from something in our past, we tend to have an overreaction to it, um, which is why codependents struggle with this being able to be moderate sometimes. Um, the saying that we say in trauma therapy is if it's hysterical, it's historical. Yes. Um, so if yes. someone's having a huge reaction about something that might not be that big, 
there's a good chance that there's some his, history behind it. And that could be one of the reasons why codependents struggle with this moderation. Um, yes, and it's just sort of brought to mind um, the 1980s when um, I first graduated and there was a plethora of motivational seminars. And, you know, for me who came from Asia, I just thought, whoa, you know, um, why is everyone so motivated all of a sudden, like walking through coals and mm. setting, you know, outrageous goals? And, I mean, they were very money goals. There was lifestyle goals, but they were, you know, clearly about money. And I'm just wondering, well, this came from this model you're talking about, some setup in childhood about, I don't know, reality mm. or moderation? I don't know. Well, I feel like that, that goes, um, I mean, it's all intertwined anyway, but it goes back to that difficulty experience in our reality. And I, I should have read it, but um, I didn't read the full article, but there was a piece that I read recently on how this positive psychology kind of movement of, you know, yay, you know, um, right. everyone be happy and we're all good and don't be a Debbie Downer and all that gives us that sense of it's not okay to sometimes just be sad. Hmm. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, what do you say when someone passes you or even a friend and says, hey, how are you? What do you say? Fine. Okay, so. fine. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you know what we say fine is? In, um, Go on. Well, I'm going to do the non, the one which doesn't have an expletive. But, um, <laughs> okay. Replace the F with the expletive if you want, the non-PG mm. version. But feeling insecure negative emotions. Mm. As we say, it's an acronym for that. That's right. Um, but we don't say... Oh, but you know, ça va, ça va bien, you know, um, pas mal, et, et vous, you know, like in every language there mm. is, um, you know, comme ça. Yes. Always oh, bien. You know, yeah, it's not just English. Yeah, ni hao, But it's the same so, in like a fight with your partner, and you just go, "Oh, it's fine." Yeah, it's all it's, a fine. It's it's, a, mm. it's not fine. It's never fine. Uh, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. I like that exactly. And I think, mm. why do we say that? What's your? Why do you? Why do you say that when you when someone asks you how you are? Why do you think you say that? Okay, so there's a word. There's a phrase called oversharing. All right. Okay. Yes. yes. So I mean, okay. how much does? How much do you really want to know how I am? Yes. So that's interesting. Okay, because this is, this is a friend that's talking to you, okay? But the, we think, you don't want to know what I really feel. You want to know the good stuff, right? You want to know that I like all the positive things um, that's happened. You know, um, unless you've set that up in a relationship, we have good vulnerability and connection and there's a permission to talk about these things, then we're probably just going to go, oh, yeah, really good. Yeah, mm. work's good and life's good. And well, how much time do you have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. I, mean, I think there are these passing phrases which should be allowed because they're just greetings, basically. Yeah. You know, they're, they're just floss words. You don't okay? want to tell the checkout person oh, who's scanning your veggies about, you know, your life trauma. You know, that is oversharing, but yeah. Um, I suppose also it's, a, it's an element of fear. So last time I was at dinner and there was a guy in his 70s who went back to England to visit all his old friends. And I mean literally old, you know, they were in their 90s. And this old lady that he went to visit um, was saying, well, this might be the last time you see me. Mm. Anyway, he said, because he's quite um, quick-witted, he said, um, I don't look that bad, do I, Norma? <laughs> Okay, so, you know, he was trying to make her feel, Better. you know, okay. So Using humour. Yeah. Mm. But I asked him, was she also asking you for a conversation? Yeah. You know, like, this is the last time you'll mm. see me, Peter, you know, and, and should he have said, wow, you know, how, how is it for you? You know, yeah. I, I know you're 92 now, um, but instead he made a quip, which yes. is, you know, I don't look that bad, do I, for my age? Mm. So I get it. Yes. But what are we looking for here? Mm. Yeah. So it was a vulnerability blocker, wasn't it? And maybe he wasn't ready to want, not wanting to go there because he felt uncomfortable. Mm. That, that wall of humor. I mean, Mm. I used to do that all the time, you know, to deflect from humor. That that was probably one of my best defense. (laughs) Well, I thought I was funny. Other people probably did. (laughs) But like that wall of humor, it's, it's like this person was being vulnerable and they got, um, they got a wall of humor, didn't they? Like, you know, some kind of joke rather than, oh gosh, yeah, that's, that's really sad. I might not see you, you know, mm. and, um, how are you about that? You know, and as you say, that's very much validated. I mean, banter yeah. is very validated in mm. our society, you know, the, the funny guy, the funny girl, mm. you know, like, let's get her to a party because she's so funny when yeah. she's drunk, you know, um, I mean. And I don't think that what we talk about necessarily is deep and meaningful as such because mm. that's also dissed a lot of times. Oh, God, here comes Lily, Lily again with the deep and meaningful. So I'm going, oh. you know, <laughs> it's not a deep and meaningful. It's just, you know, chat mm, really just, for yeah. me. And I don't get 
funny or depressed about it. I just go, well, it's just live chat, you know? Yeah. But, but you're right. So if we ask you, how are you, what do you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, what do you say? The truth. Well, depending. Like, if you want to if you want to be vulnerable with this person, if it's someone that you know and you trust and you actually, you know, there is something to share about it, then be honest. Be real with them. If it's someone that you're just passing and you don't really want to get into it, then, you know, fine. It's fine, you know. But it's just when we just do it all the time and we never mm. let people in where it becomes the problem. Yeah. yeah. Good point. So. And how was this set up in childhood, do you reckon? The, the, uh, about... Um, sharing oh, our feelings yeah. yeah so that goes back to the reality thing is where we're you know where society deems negative emotions to be not okay mm. um where you know we're a debbie down or a negative nancy if we if we you know say those things or we're being immature or emotional so or we're too needy and we're too like yeah, yeah. the list goes on doesn't it exactly also, you know kids are given value you know where they're bright and chirpy you know like mm. she's not just a bright little thing, isn't she? A breath of fresh air, that mm, one. Yeah. And then you just go, oh, here comes a dark cloud. You mm. know, he's such a moody little boy, isn't he? Mm. So I guess those judgmental phrases are used from a long time ago. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, lots here's, of... Here's trouble, mm. but that's meant to be cute, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, lots of lots oh, wow. of shame around these emotions. Interesting. So, yeah. Where can you joke with your kids? <laughs> you call them a drunk. Well, that's the, the thing, isn't it? Surely that's a balance. Oh, it's yes. a yeah, mm-hmm. mm. yeah. Because we can't have no humor, can we? No, that would be, be not very fun. Society. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yes. So what tips do you have for us to move through this? Okay, so in terms of experiencing our reality moderately. Um, is sometimes it's being able to firstly be more in tune with our emotions. So kids learn to shut off when there's um, when there's trauma in the you know, when you're growing up in an abusive environment, for instance. Um, kids learn to shut off from their emotions. It's actually quite amazing. Um, that the part of the brain which is the right hemisphere which deals with emotions um, actually gets more separated from the left hemisphere the structure that integrates them so they get really disintegrated um, from each other so they can you know have something bad happen at home and still be able to get on and get on with it at school the next day so a lot of this kind of stuff is re reintegrating their feelings and emotions together Um, sometimes um, processing um, old traumas by talking about them and kind of um, thawing the emotions that have been frozen can be a really good one but just learning how to regulate learning how to regulate our emotions which includes being able to be in touch with our emotions as well so rather than walling up and controlling them is learning to be in touch with them more is the first step to being able to regulate them you know often codependents are so disconnected from their emotions they go from zero to a hundred really quickly um the the saying um in the treatment center when where i used to work there was a big sign as you left um which said you know you come here to feel good and you leave here being good at feeling and that was such a hallmark of the work that we did is getting in touch with our own feelings and and befriend those emotions as well um rather than go oh yuck feelings you like get away from me you know that we learn to befriend them and embrace them because whatever we resist persists. If we're, we, you know, ignoring emotions do not make them go away. It makes them usually um, come out explosively. Mm. So yeah, I had a really wonderful friend of mine who's also a mindset coach tell me once or kind of go through a bit of a um, part of her protocol, I guess, or program that she was running with clients. And and her way of looking at it was very much like we've grown up believing or, or being conditioned that we have positive and negative emotions. And yes, some emotions feel better than others. So mm-hmm. feeling happy feels better than feeling sad. But why do we, you know, we have to ask ourselves why we associate that as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. And that was, so that's kind of her foundation of all, all emotions are equal yeah. and validating that every emotion is valid and we have it for a reason. Yeah. Um, and then deeping, like diving further into that, she would get, get her clients to do exercises where she would go, right, you know, when you are feeling angry or you're feeling sad or you're feeling anxious... All I want you to do is just sit with that for a second and say to yourself, it's okay that I am X, Y, or Z. So it is okay that I am anxious. And she was like, as soon as we bring a validation to feeling that emotion, mm-hmm. the that really overwhelming feeling of the emotion dulls down. Mm-hmm. And we can just go, it's okay. I'm anxious. I'm still okay because I still have that self-worth and I still yeah. have that foundation. And now I can process the emotion. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're very quick to go, I'm anxious. 
oh my god that's a really bad thing I need to not be anxious yeah yeah you create you're having anxiety about anxiety yeah you know so it's a double whammy so when we practice acceptance it helps dial down mm. the emotions so yeah. um yeah no it's a good good skill yeah it's yeah. a good tool should I say yeah so you know I mean you were saying how it manifests in mm. um, later on problems like you know eating disorders and mm. um, yes yeah. I mean yeah a lot of work that we do covers all that too you know I mean I've just finished up another um you know, postgrad neuroscience course about the left brain, right brain, mm. and their role in immune system function. Mm. So the left brain starting the process off, but the right brain saying to the immune system, okay, that's enough now. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't happen, you know, autoimmune conditions um, carry on. Yeah. So all the work that you're doing fits really, really nicely into our triad of health and the homeostatic balance that we all seek in the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as Sarah says, you know, to sit with the emotions until we have a, a point of um, equity Limity, yeah, you know, which mm. is um, so important, yeah. yeah. And you were saying about the how this can turn into secondary things, like yeah. so. This particular one, the difficulty experiencing your reality moderately, mm. can particularly have issues with um, self medicating feelings like addiction. So, you know, we can only control our emotions so much and push them down before we need to turn to food, substances, gambling, sex, like in a way that's unhealthy, in a way that I'm trying to numb out Mm. all the feelings. Um, You know, I know Brene Brown, I talk about her a lot because I love her so much. Um, She talks about she was a take-the-edge-off-aholic. And, you know, she talks about in her TED Talk that one of the problems with our society is that we're one of the most over-medicated, overweight, um, you know, have so many substance abuse issues um, because of this need to numb out our feelings because we don't have the tools to effectively be able to sit with them mm. um, and allow them to be there. So, you know, we can only numb out so much before we need extra mm. assistance to do that. So Numb, numb the bad and numb mm. the good. You well, know? You yeah. ca- she also says you can't selectively numb. Exactly. So if you, you numb, numb the fear, pain yeah. and shame, you're going to you be numbing the, the love and joy yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's the problem. Mm. I think we've covered a lot. Have we – did you want to – um, say more on that I think that that's good I feel like we talked about that enough and ready for my three things whenever you're ready yeah, yeah cool wow. well, I just think um, I guess just before we get to that mm. we've covered we have covered a lot over two mm-hmm. episodes um, and I think it's there's a lot there to digest for our listeners which I think is amazing but um, yeah I, I think we we touched on a lot of things and we touched on things that might be triggering for some people mm-hmm. and might sort of bring up things in their own relationship so Obviously, and we say this all the time, but please, you know, get in touch with your healthcare team um, or reach out to us and we can, between the three of us, um, Mm -hmm. we can definitely refer people where they need to go. Um, And as I said before, I'll pop a bunch of those things in the show notes, Mm -hmm. the the code of stuff, so people can click on it. Yes, Um, yeah. There's a few really good meetings which kind of all addresses codependency in different ways. So, you Mm -hmm. know, there's Codependency Anonymous, which is specifically for that, but Al-Anon, which is if you have an alcoholic in the family or... um, adult children of alcoholics and or dysfunctional families is also a really good one so um, if you don't like one there's lots of different options Um, and the cool thing is is like since COVID there's Zoom meetings so if it's a bit confronting Mm -hmm. for you to go you know walk into a hall full of people for the first time um, that you don't know is that you can have a you know a sneaky peek by (laughs) logging in on Zoom I think it's a much um, friendlier kind of um, warming up to it Mm -hmm. so um, you can do that too so I, I want to say though the first episode you gave us with on trauma, mm-hmm. I think that sets the tone for um, to last week and this week's um, episodes from you. Mm-hmm. And I want our audience to actually take note of the points that they are particularly interested in mm-hmm. and, and write to us. Yeah. And if Jules will be so kind to come again, <laughs> or, or we find another victim, yeah, <laughs> to speak to those points because. No, I feel this is a good format to, yeah. to explore something that's quite, um, yeah. you know, really mm. meaningful. Actually. It is. Yeah. It is really meaningful. Mm. And it's it's powerful and it, it can change lives. Can. Like mm. we just talked about how it can go from childhood into adulthood. And if we can understand mm. these concepts and theories now, mm. um, that is going to definitely not just listening change to lives. And yeah, likewise. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Jules, um, share with us your three little things. Okay, I changed these three little things so many times. I think I'm just going to change them in my head all of a sudden again. Um, So hard to narrow it down. I guess the first one is um, understanding, like self-compassion and patience. Mm. So important when, uh, if you're thinking about recovering from your codependency, 
have self-compassion and be patient. Um, it takes time. Um, remember that the reason that you're doing these things and thinking this way is it helped you survive childhood. So um, please be kind to yourself when doing this work. It can bring up a lot of shame when we start to notice some of the dysfunctional things that we do. So so important to be kind um, and be patient. You know, it's a life. It's actually a lifelong journey. You know, I say in 12 steps, we say we're recovering rather than recovered because it's a lifelong journey. Like I'm always... Um, being confronted with another codependent behavior or or slip back into some things um Mm. and i need to kind of get back on track so um that self um, compassion piece and patience um and it does get easier so like it's pretty confronting in the beginning but it gets easier and easier and easier and um to kind of work through as you get more recovery up so that's my number one Mm -hmm. number two is learning about your symptoms and confronting your core symptoms. So maybe, hopefully, a few things came up for you and you're like, oh, I did that. Um, Keep on learning about your codependency symptoms. Um, A couple of ones um, that you can do is, you know, looking at your story, what what your history is, what your parents do, what those dynamics, they can give us, you know, some good clues what our codependency stuff is. there is the code of meetings that you can always attend. You know, as you hear someone else share, you go, oh, yep, I do that too. Um, so you can bring up new awarenesses. You could also read um, like Facing Codependency by Pia Melody. She goes into quite a bit of detail around that. Um, so, yeah, so learning to confront your core symptoms and learning what they are, mm-hmm. you know, with awareness becomes change. So we can do something once we're aware of it. Yeah. Great. So that's number two. Yep. And three. number three, uh, learning functional adult behaviors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in, reco- in recovery for codependency, we call that reparenting. So we acknowledge that your parents are also perfectly imperfect and, um, you know, probably did the best they could. Where they fell short, it's our job as adults to give ourselves what we didn't have growing up. Um, so give ourselves the skills and the, the, um, the knowledge that we need to do to be functional adults in relationship with ourselves and other people. Um, and just a couple of tips about how we can learn those functional adult behaviors. Um, it's getting some mentors. So you might have a therapist who works through some of those. I highly recommend having a therapist who's good with trauma and relationship stuff. Um, having, or you can have other mentors in your life. So people that you kind of look at and you go, oh, I'd like to be a bit more like, I like, I like how she does that. Mm-hmm. Um, she has good boundaries. She's really good at communicating what's going on for her and asking for her needs to be met and kind of try to bring those people in your world. Um, I'm really lucky that, you know, part of my professional development, I need a, a supervisors. Mm-hmm. So I've always picked supervisors who have something that I want, usually good boundaries because I love boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get a lot from that, those relationships. If you go to a 12-step meeting, you know, they say when you're picking a sponsor, find someone who's got the recovery that, that you want mm-hmm. and ask them how they got it. And, you know, pick a sponsor that you look up to. I also, you know, use Brene Brown as a mentor, the ways that she does things and um, certain characters on TV who I find, like not real characters. Um, my husband bags me out, but I love Veronica Mars. It's like, it's for teenagers, but she's really assertive and she's got really good like grounding and knows who she is and shares what she, uh, you know, really honestly as her character. So I like surround myself watching people on TV and how they do functional adult behaviors. Um, so yeah, lots of different ways that we can learn this stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jules. Um, that is, yeah, it's been amazing. And, um, as Lily said, you know, we could probably sit here and talk to you about 7,000 different topics and still learn something. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jules. Thanks for having me. I love talking about this. So thanks for letting me have the platform to talk about codependency. Next time. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.